And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to, well, it's the last week, full week of October. Monday coming up, but we can now, that'll be Halloween wrapping up the month, of course. Uh, of course, we couldn't start this morning's show without saying congratulations to the Astros for a four-game sweep over the Yankees, heading back to the World Series, fourth time in six years. And this year, they're not going to cheat. <laughs> so they say. Anyway, no, congratulations. Uh, the Academy stayed open. They literally opened the doors last night after the game. So if you wanted any Astros World Series gear, you're too late. It is it's sold Gone. out yeah. in minutes. Um, they opened all the Academy stores right after the game last night. Sold out. Here's the question. You know, when they, when they do this, they print, you know, jerseys for both teams because yes. they don't know who's going to win. Right. What happens to the Yankee jerseys for winning the <laughs> series? They Those just get thrown a, away? No, they wind up on a third world black market somewhere. <laughs> Where they don't know who actually it right. is. <laughs> I'm not a Katisha. <laughs> so, there you go. Anyway, congratulations to the Astros. Now they've got, uh, they just have to win the World Series. And yeah. I, believe, I believe that starts Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. I, you it's, know it's, what? It's, I'll have to check. I don't I know. Think it's a, I think it starts Tuesday. Yeah. Um, but here's Pro what's interesting. You'll know because productivity will just Yeah, this is correct. Fall off but here's cliff. what's funny. So, uh, Saturday, my wife and I were doing, we, we go out to lunch and we're, ha we're spending a little bit of time together because she's been traveling this past week. So, you know, we're just catching up, spending some time. And, and uh, on Friday, um, you know, I had poor Brent theoretically going to have to be down here, you know, working late on a Friday because my cable was out in our entire neighborhood. The cable was out. Cable, internet, everything completely down. Apparently Comcast was doing some type of upgrade to their network. And so, you know, so it came back on uh, Friday, which was fine. Yep. And then so Saturday we're out at lunch and it says, you know, alert from Xfinity, uh, your service will be down until tomorrow because we're finishing our upgrades. And I'm like, great. So, right. So I go home, right. Sure enough, I get home. There's no internet, no cable. I can't, I'm, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm trying to write an article for the blog post next week. Can't do anything because I can't get on the internet. And uh, I didn't really think, it didn't really click to me that, you know, what time it was. And then all of a sudden outside, I start seeing all these cars start to park up on the street, right? Because all of our neighbors are all having Astros baseball games, but there's no cable, right? There's no T, there's no internet, no cable. <laughs> and I can only imagine, because I can tell you that we were about, it just starting the second inning of the Astros game, because I'm, I'm paying attention to it on my phone, um, and cable comes back on. So, oh man, I am yeah. sure Comcast got a ton of angry you consumer phone calls going. You better turn that cable on right now. <laughs> so, screw the upgrade, plug it back <laughs> in. Exactly. <laughs> so, cable works in our neighborhood. Yeah, Anyways, <laughs> I'd hate to be that poor guy on the other end of Comcast. <laughs> I'll fix it. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so uh, Friday actually had some very good action on Friday. Let's talk about the markets, right? Um, 
So on Friday, I actually had some very good positive action, 90% upside day for stocks and bouncing right off that 20 day moving average, which has been kind of resistance ever since that uh, July, August peak. Uh, the 20-day moving average has acted as consistent resistance. Every time we rallied to it, the market failed. Um, four day, early last week, we rallied above that and then stayed above it all week long. So that's a very positive confirmation. Came down, retested 20-day moving average, bounced very sharply off of that on Friday. Big up day on Friday. Lots of good volume, nice breadth, 90% up day. Um, so this is actually setting up the market here for this kind of month-end rally that we've kind of been talking about here uh, just recently. Now, uh, having said that, we still have a challenge here, which are these previous tops right at 3,800. So the market needs to rally today, tomorrow, needs to get above that 3,800 level. And if they do, then we've got a chance here to get up to about 3,900 as that first kind of important level of resistance for the market. So again, we're, we're starting to set up a nicer kind of action in the markets. And I know it's kind of felt crappy over the last month because really ever since the beginning of October, markets have gone absolutely nowhere. I know it, it seems like it's been a terrible month of action, but honestly, the markets did nothing all month and have just been kind of trading sideways. So Again, we need to kind of break out of this range and then we can potentially set a, a little bit move higher in the markets here short term. Now, uh, on a real short term basis, markets are over, uh, overbought here. So again, markets may struggle for a day or two and then kind of work some of that overbought condition off, then potentially rally higher. But again, we have a good solid buy signal on both of our money flow indicators as well as MACD. Those are coming up off some fairly deeply oversold levels. So again, looks like there's some more action here. Now, one thing about the month of October, 24% of all mutual funds have their year end in October. That's about 1.7 trillion in assets for those, for those firms. So a lot of selling pressure as these uh, mutual funds rebalance and do their work over the course of this month. So that's been one thing really kind of applying pressure. In November, there's a very light calendar of mutual fund uh, year end. So uh, again, a lot of that selling pressure is going away. And then on the other side of this, and I was talking about this with Adam Taggart over the weekend in our weekly market recap, we have a lot of, of positive bias as we end the month. So at the end of this week, Stock buybacks now open back up. So stock corporations have been in blackout for the last couple of weeks because of earnings reports coming up, have not been able to buy back their shares. That opens up on Friday and then moves into November. That accelerates. That's roughly between four and a half and five billion dollars a day in net buying just from corporate buybacks. That buying action ver uh, combined with less mutual fund redemptions and sellings, uh, that's gonna help lift the markets here potentially in the short term, give that kind of that potential that just less drag on markets, you get some buyers in that have really kind of been shut out of the markets for the last couple of weeks. So again, there is some positive action happening in the markets. Also on Friday, one of the things contributing to the rally on Friday was kind of a potential maybe change in tone. Mary Daly and then of course an article by Nick Timrose who's the Fed whisperer out on Friday talking about the Fed's now starting to change their stance here a bit on how to start slowing rate hikes starting in December. Now that's they're still hiking rates right but 
the, ch the change in tone now is how do we start slowing the pace of rate hikes and start getting to the point to where we're stopped hiking rates. That was also kind of that positive lift to the markets that maybe the Fed has gone, as, you know, has gone far enough and they're going to start trying to back off here a little bit, particularly as things are really starting to become very tenuous in various credit markets, potentially. You know, we talked about Bank of England last week. We talked about Bank of Japan. Lots of cracks in the foundation really showing up in those two countries. But that's also starting to spread. And the U.S. is not immune to those financials instability. So we'll, we'll see what happens here. But part of the contribution to the rally on Friday and this morning futures are, are pointing up a little bit after that rally on Friday um, is because of this potential kind of change in rhetoric from quantitative tightening by the Federal Reserve to a quali more of a qualitative tightening in terms of really just trying to talk the markets into where they want them to be, lower that volatility risk in markets. But again, what the, what the Fed can't really have happen, they can't really have the markets just take off running and, and start having a big explosive move to the upside because that contributes back into the inflation problem. So they really can't have that either. So it's, it's a very fine rope that the Fed is trying to walk right now. Okay, come back. We're going to talk about inflation, markets, money, lots of stuff coming up on the Real Investment Show this morning. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The end of the year is fast approaching. What will the new year bring? Join Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and Lance Roberts for our year-end economic review special event Tuesday, November 15th. How to address higher taxes in the new year. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Real investmentadvice.com the real investment show and welcome back to the show this morning you know, so one of the problems that occurs because we don't teach financial literacy of uh, to any great degree is that when people go to vote of course remember next week so we have we have uh, two things really coming up in the next two weeks of pretty big importance for the markets uh, the first is of course uh, November 2nd and 3rd is the next Fed meeting now they're expected to currently hike rate 75 basis points still fighting that inflation fight because inflation is very high Core prices have been a lot more sticky than people have wanted, and especially the Fed has wanted. So, you know, that's really kind of feeding into that impact into the consumer. Then the following week, on November, Tuesday the 8th, we have, of course, the midterm elections. Uh, in Houston, early voting started today. And so that's, you know, so that's underway, right? So we're all, we're, we've got 93 people on the ballot. It's one of the longest ballots in Texas history. And uh, the, uh, the poll administrator said basically that if you're familiar with the ballot, it'll take you three to five minutes to fill it out. If you're unfamiliar with the ballot, it'll take you seven to 10 minutes. So if you're voting, be prepared to stand in line for a little bit. So it's going to be a little bit of time. But the point is, is people are going to vote. And, you know, the, the problem is, is, of course, that they're voting for people that 
are supposed to be more knowledgeable than them to run the country and make the decisions, uh, of course, to, you know, make sure that, you know, the, the economy is strong and things are moving in the right direction, right? Joe Biden doing an MSNBC interview this weekend. He fell asleep during the interview, but talking about, you know, potentially running the country. So the point is, is that this is what we're going to vote for, but yet most people that are going to the polls are not, not really informed about the economics and the financial impacts of policy decisions on them, right? So what, they, what happens? They, they show up to vote, and how do they vote? They vote with their pocketbook. We talked about this before, right? Right now, the, the, you know, the top three concerns um, by voters is the economy, inflation, and what's happening um, economically. It's the economic. As, uh, as, uh, <laughs> as the old line once goes, it's the economy stupid. And that's how people vote. But unfortunately, they're, they're going to vote for people that they want to change, right? I, I don't like the economy. I don't like what's going on. I, you know, I, I want to change. So I'm going to vote for somebody different. In fact, a recent poll out shows that more women who previously voted Democrat will be voting Republican this time around because of the number one concern on their books, which is inflation. But how do we have inflation? How is it here? Why do we have inflation? What was done that caused the inflation, right? Those, see, those are the questions that we should be asking. So if I'm going to go vote for somebody, what are you going to do different for me than the other guy to make things better? See, we really shouldn't be voting party lines at all, right? We should be voting for the best people in office. Doesn't matter whether they're Democrat, Republican, or whatever. That should all be thrown out the window. Basically, just we're voting for the best person. That's the way politics should be, right? People run, and, you know, if you're the best candidate that's going to, to solve my problems and put me in a better position economically, that's the person we should vote for, right? Unfortunately, we just don't do it that way. The problem of, of being uneducated when it comes time to vote is that you believe whatever your candidates tell you, right? So I'm Democrat, so I listen to only what the Democrats tell me when I read social media, that I only listen to people that that tell me what I want to hear. I'm Republican, so I only listen to what people tell me and what you know I hear on television that supports my views. And if they tell me, if one party or the other tells me what I want to hear, then I, I take that as the truth, right? We don't question because we don't know how do we question if we don't know about it if we don't know about how debt affects economic growth long term how can you question it right this is why we want more free stuff right i want free college i want debt forgiveness for my college loans i want free health care i want you know i want the government to absorb more of the health care costs so that it's cheaper to me but i what i don't understand is is that yes while my health care is cheaper to me it's requiring more government debt to pay for the excess, somebody's got to get paid, which is slowing economic growth, which is why I'm frustrated because my cost of living, how I support myself, is not growing. You know, I, I show this uh, graphic from time to time. In fact, I've got, I just recently wrote an article about recession fatigue. More and more consumers are suffering from recession fatigue and we're not even in a recession yet right but they feel like it because 
inflation and because prices are going up and because their wages aren't keeping up with inflation. And inflation is eating into their ability to sustain their standard of living because it requires almost $7,000 in debt on top of their income and savings just to make ends meet, to maintain their standard of living. Not to improve it, just to maintain it, they're having to go into debt. So I'm going to vote for somebody different this time around. But see, here's the problem is that you hear stuff and you have to scratch your head and you wonder why Nancy Pelosi this weekend on Face the Nation had this to say about inflation. And the fact is, is that uh, when I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard him there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Yes. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living. Now. I'm, you know, if I don't know any better, I go, oh, so inflation isn't the issue. It's the cost of living. That's my problem. Those are the same thing, Nancy. <laughs> I take my car into the shop because it's not running, right? I have to have it towed into the shop because the car's not running. And I, and I tell the mechanic, I say, Mr. Mechanic, my car is not running. And the mechanic says, well, it's not your car that's the problem. It's the engine. It's the same thing. <laughs> Inflation and the cost of living is the same thing. Inflation is the measure. How do we see it? We see that in the cost of living. Right? When we talk about inflation, we're talking about price changes. We're talking about an index. We're talking about the consumer price index, and that's how we measure the rate of inflation. How do we see the measure of inflation? We see it in our cost of living. They are the same thing. And yeah, inflation is a global phenomenon right now because every country in the world did exactly the same stupid thing we did, which was shut down their economy, constrict their supply chain, and then flood the system with liquidity, and voila, you get inflation because you have too much demand and no supply. Now that supply chains are coming back online, we're starting to see the reverse of this, and now this is why the payback is still coming. And that payback is recession. And fortunately for Nancy Pelosi, the cost of living is about to come down sharply. Because when we get into a recession, that's what will happen. Of course, it won't feel any better because once you're in a recession, that means you no longer have a job either. But that's a different story, right? Every <laughs> the, next, the next iteration of this will be, it's not unemployment that's the problem. It's just that you don't have a job. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> So cost of living is very important, and this is one of the things that is eating up Americans right now is the fact, and, and this, is a, this is truly a global phenomenon, and it's being exacerbated in other countries far worse than ours because we live in U.S. dollars. So she's right about one thing. She is right that inflation is worse in other countries because they also have inflation caused by the same factors we have, which was shutting down their economy and, of course, printing too much money into the system. But now they're also battling the fact that they have inflation from the currency exchange of the U.S. dollar into their currency. And the U.S. dollar continues to get stronger. So the prices of everything they import from the U.S. is rising dramatically. See, for us, at least our tailwind is that while we have inflation, 
we have a deflationary impact from the exports because of the strength of the dollar. If the dollar starts to decline to any great degree, the cost of the standard of living will go up even more because now all those goods that we import from overseas will become more expensive on a purchasing power parity basis. But see, this is the problem now. You know, everybody's going to go vote, which is great, right? And you should go out and vote, exercise your right while you still have it. And the point is, is that a lot of people are voting simply because they were told to vote one party or another, right? But we should be voting for who has the right policies prescription to fix the problems, not today, but long term. And there's some really smart people running for office, by the way. They won't win, but there's some really smart people out there running for office because they're not running in a, in a major political party, right? But this is, this is one of the things that, as voters, we need to really start rethinking is why don't we run better people for office, right? Why don't we run smarter people for office? Why don't we run people for office that really understand how to create a policy prescription that will fix the economic woes. For 50 years, we've been in a negative trend of economic growth in the U.S., starting in the late 70s. And nobody has woken up to the fact yet that, you know, back in the 60s, we didn't have a deficit. Today, we're running one of the largest deficits on record. And we can't get economic growth out of the 2% range on a long-term basis. I wonder if there's a correlation there. Nobody's even asking the question. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com the end of the year is fast approaching what will the new year bring join richard rosso danny ratliff and lance roberts for our year-end economic review special event tuesday november 15th how to address higher taxes in the new year should you delay your retirement in 2023 what will the midterm elections mean for markets register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, Dow's up 215 right now. Uh, Pre-market, Nasdaq's up 50. S&P's up pointing, pointing up nicely. This was after a bit of sloppy trade earlier this morning. Markets were actually negative about uh, 3.30 this morning when I got up. But so they are turning around here a bit. 
So that's a, you know, again, what we need here is some follow through from that rally on Friday. And, and that was a good, you know, we had a good solid rally on Friday night, like I said, at the open this morning, 90% update. Um, so a bit of, of follow through here. 45% of the S&P 500 will report this week. So, yeah, we're talking about all the big boys, Apple, Amazon. They're all reporting this week. It's going to be a very busy week uh, in, in terms of earnings. And, and now, again, at the end of this week, with roughly 75% of the S&P 500 reporting, that also opens up the buyback window for stocks. So, again, corporations can start buying back their stock. That's going to add a bit of about $5 billion a day, roughly, give or take, um, through the through the next couple of months as we get ready to wrap up the year. Um, on a kind of a, uh, you know, on the Fed side, of course, as I said, next week is the Federal Reserve, the next Federal Reserve meeting, and that's where they'll announce their next rate hike. And, and again, 75 basis points is already pretty much already baked into the cake. I, I think the markets are already prepared for that. Um, what they're not potentially prepared for is a shift in language that is starting to talk a little bit more about slowing the pace of rate hikes, becoming a little bit more cautious, kind of more taking more of a wait and see approach. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, right? There's just some kind of some rhetoric coming out. Mary Daly kind of made that comment uh, last week. We had the, the Fed, like I said earlier in the show today, Nick Timrose, who's the Fed whisperer for the Wall Street Journal, made a similar comment. Uh, and again, you know, after all these rate hikes, the Federal Reserve needs to start to slow down um, as they approach their quote-unquote terminal rate. I mean, they can't just keep hiking 75 base points every meeting forever. So it's got to slow down eventually. And, and what the markets want to see is, is that conversation that maybe they're getting closer to the end of rate hikes. Because if we get to the end of rate hikes, that means we're closer to the end of rate reductions, right? That's what that's what that's what the market's taking out of this. I think one thing to remember is that while the Fed may slow the pace of rate hikes, they're still hiking rates. And assuming they hike rates 75 basis points in November, that will be four 75 basis point rate hikes that aren't even showing up in the economy yet. So that's three full percentage points of rate hikes that aren't even in the economy yet. Those won't show up until the first half of next year. Because there's a six to 12 month lag time for if I hike rates, it takes six months for that high, that rate hike to show up in the economy. So there's, you know, we're still working on the March and the and the the uh, April rate hikes, right? We haven't even gotten into the the last four 75 basis point rate hikes yet. They're not even in the economy yet, right? That's just all anticipated. So that's all coming. So next year, things are going to get a bit more dicey economically. Corporate profit margins are going to slow down. Sales are going to slow. Again, why do we hike rates? We hike rates to slow consumption. If we slow consumption... That does bring down inflation, but it also brings down economic growth, economic activity, which leads to unemployment. If you don't have those things, you can't bring down inflation. Right? You've got to contract the consumer. Right now, the consumer's been doing great, right? Because they're just borrowing more on credit cards. American Express, of course, is that company that 
gives credit cards to the upper class. I'm writing an article right now, right, by the way, called There Is No Middle Class. If you look at the data, 80% of Americans barely make enough money or don't, right? I mean, they either barely make enough money or they're not making enough money to support a family of four in the U.S. on an inflation-adjusted basis. 80%, right? The other 20%, including the top 5%, they're doing just fine. And that's really the target group of American Express. And, and, and why is that? For a long time, American Express only had one type of credit card. They loaned you money, but you had to pay the whole bill at the end of the month. And then a few years back, they got onto the, the bandwagon of letting you make payments because they were losing too much money relative to MasterCard Visa, and they needed that continued payment stream. But the, you know where American Express built their base, their, their base model was on the more affluent consumer that could pay off their credit card every month. And so you went out, you rang up your, your MX bill, and you paid it at the end of the month. That was the way it worked, and that's the, that's the way American Express built their business. So they've always kind of targeted that upper class of the American consumer. On Friday, American Express tumbled the most in four months after the credit card processing giant set aside more for bad loss loans than analysts expected, suggesting that the fastest ever surge in interest rates is adversely affecting their customers' ability to pay their bills. Provisions in souring loans were $778 million in the quarter, worse than the $573 million analysts in a Bloomberg survey were expecting, and that's the most since quarter two of 22, when the U.S. economy was still in lockdown due to COVID. The move should probably not have come as a surprise as Amex has already warned investors for months that charge-offs would rise as consumers begin borrowing more in the wake of the pandemic. Net write-off jumped 1.1% from 0.8% a year ago. So here, you know, here's the point. We've talked about this before, is that as inflation goes up and wages fail to keep up with the cost of living, even though Nancy Pelosi says those are two different things, um, People have to make a choice. Do I pay my credit card bill or do I put food in my family's mouth? Do I pay my credit card bill today or do I put gas in my car so I can go to work and keep my job? See, those are the decisions that families are having to make. And that is the decision that more than 50% of American households are making because their cost of living is far outstripping what their income and savings are. And, you know, we just showed recently, last week, we ran an article talking about the consumer not being prepared. We set this recession fatigue article. The American consumer, whether it's millennials, Gen Zs, baby boomers, Gen Xs, they don't have any money. Big chunks of these, 30 40% of these age groups have less than $500 in the bank. They have no savings for retirement. They are literally living paycheck to paycheck. Another article out last week, 60% of American consumers living paycheck to paycheck. 60%. Now, that certainly doesn't sound like a well-heeled consumer. 
that has a strong balance sheet and able to weather a market environment. Harvard Business Review recently wrote an article and they said that the net worth of all consumers, all five quintiles of consumers had an increase in net worth since 2020 following the shutdown. Well, yeah, we sent them all checks. So, yes, their net worth went up. They went out and bought a lot of crap. They bought houses, whatever it was. Their net worth went up. So, yes, there was an increase in net worth of across all quintiles. That doesn't mean that they're healthy financially. 90% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of income earners. 70% of entire net worth is owned by the top 10%. That includes houses, investments, everything, right? 70% of net worth is owned by the top 10% of income earners. Everybody else fights over the remaining 30% of net worth. So yeah, their net worth may have come up a bit, but that doesn't mean they're in the potential position of being able to support a lifestyle or a family or whatever it is in an inflationary environment that's running over 8%, right? Just can't make ends meet. So all that's going to show up next year as those interest rates continue to go up because where do interest rates show up? As the Fed's hiking interest rates, where do those rates show up? In credit cards, variable rates. You know, we're talking about, I was uh, doing my weekly market recap with Adam over the weekend and we talked about the criminal enterprises that I call major banks. And they're all just reporting earnings about how much money they just made, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, how much money they made on net interest income. And that's the difference between what they borrow at and what they loan it out at and what they get paid. Of course, right now they're getting paid a lot on their overnight excess reserves. Your money market rate at the bank is still below 1% in a lot of cases. They're keeping all that money, not passing it on to you, but they have no problem at the same time, though, hiking up those credit card rates. More money for them, less money for you. And the Fed's the mob boss. Be right back after the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com the end of the year is fast approaching what will the new year bring join richard rosso danny ratliff and lance roberts for our year-end economic review special event tuesday november 15th how to address higher taxes in the new year should you delay your retirement in 2023 what will the midterm elections mean for markets register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic Economic Review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
All right. Uh, welcome back to the show this morning. Dow's now up 290 points, continuing to improve here this morning as we get ready for market open. NASDAQ's up about 66. So, again, just trying to string together a bit of a follow-through rally from last Friday, which will be very encouraging. Again, kind of the goal today <clears throat> is to get above 3,800 for the S&P. If we can get above 3,800, that kind of clears the way resistance-wise for the markets to do potentially get back to the 50-day moving average. And then, you know, we'll see where we go from there. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Don't forget to sell into the rally. We're not done with the bear market yet, right? Or this whatever we're in, right? We're not done yet. So be sure and, and, and sell along the way here. Raise some cash. Take some opportunity. We added some stocks here recently that will sell into the rally as well. Just trying to add a little bit of beta to the portfolio. <clears throat> but this has been a challenging year, and we're not done with it yet. Now, again, there's a real likelihood that we could see a fairly strong rally here over the next, you know, four, five, six, seven weeks as we head into the end of the year. But, again, as we get into next year, we're going to have to deal with lower profit margins, slower earnings growth, those type of things. And so markets are still going to have to reprice for that. Now, have we seen the market lows? Don't know. It's possible. But if we have a recession and the recession turns out to be deeper than expected, which is always probably the case, then markets are going to have to reprice a bit lower here. So just part of the process we got to get through. It's not the end of the world, just part of the process we got to get through. So again, don't forget to sell in the rally, raise a bit of cash. And, and look, you can always buy stuff back later. Also, don't forget as we move into the year, this is a good time to go ahead and do some tax loss selling. You know, we took, uh, we'd taken a lot of gains back earlier this year. At the beginning of the year, we talked a lot about taking profits and reducing risk. Those, those profits still sitting on the books. So this will be a good time of the year to start taking some of the losses to offset those gains as we get ready to do tax filing, you know, next year. So again, and that'll be going on with mutual funds, hedge funds, everybody else. They'll be doing the same thing as well. So that's why there's, you know, while the market may recover here, there's still selling pressure. <clears throat> of course, um, you know, a lot of it will, will depend, of course, on what the Fed does, as we were talking about before, right? Are they going to start slowing or stopping the pace of rate hikes? And the real question is, is when are you going to start reducing interest rates? That's really the, the key. When are we going to start going back to quantitative easing to support markets? That's the real question, right? So that's still coming. Um, okay. You know, one of the things that, you know, we'll see next year and, you know, uh, by the way, I, I, I've made this comment a couple of times and I keep getting emails from people and, you know, the comment I made was that there's been no place to hide this year, right? So stocks are down, bonds are down, Bitcoin's down, you know. Pretty much anything you invest in is down this year, with the exception of oil stocks. They've done great this year. And so the email I get is like, what do you mean there's no place to hide? I've invested in energy stocks and I'm doing fantastic. It's like, that's great. In November of 2020, 
we talked about the fact that nobody wanted to own energy stocks back then. They were getting just monkey hammered because of prices going to zero on oil prices, et cetera. We said, hey, it's a great time to buy oil stocks. And it's been a great run. We've been taking profits along the way. This run will end. And when the market begins to rotate back, oil stocks are going to massively underperform. So as is always the case, be careful taking one-sided bets. And don't forget to sell and take the gains. Because eventually this outperformance will end. If you ever take a look, if you, if you will go online and you will Google periodic table of returns, You know, the periodic table we all learned, you know, in high school, all the different colored squares of all the different, you know, gases and minerals and those type of things. Well, one of the things that's been done over the last couple of decades is people like Callan and J.P. Morgan and others have created these periodic table of returns. And basically it looks like the periodic table of, you know, what we learned in science class. But it just has the returns and they do it for all different things. Right. So, you know individual sectors or markets or whatever. But the one you want to look for is the periodic table of return of asset classes. And when you look at it, you'll notice that it's small cap, mid cap, large cap, international, emerging markets, bonds, whatever, right? It's got all the different asset classes on it. If you look at the top of the periodic table, those are the best returns at the bottom or the worst returns for each given year. Here's what you want to look for. This is the lesson you want to learn from this. Take a look at what's at the top in a given year and then follow where that goes over the next couple of years. And this is why investors always perform poorly over time because we buy what was working last year. So at the end of this year, what people are going to do is they're going to look back and go, wow, energy just did great last year. I'm going to sell everything in my portfolio and I'm going to put it all in energy. And that's just about the time that the market rotates and what was working no longer works anymore. And investors are famous about jumping from the frying pan into the fire because a lot of investors, particularly passive investors, they look at their annual statement and, and then they go, well, my, you know, my advisor didn't do very well last year, so I'm going to go find whatever advisor did great last year. So they go find the advisor that was invested all in energy stocks last year, move all their money over there because they chase performance. And chasing performance is the one thing that was guaranteed to almost always blow you out the door at some point. Because whatever was working doesn't. And this is why back in November of 2020 or 2021, we talked about you're buying energy stocks. Yeah, it was 2020. Because nobody wanted them. Performance was terrible. Everybody hated them, right? Where are we today? Nobody wants to own treasury bonds. Everybody hates them, right? It's probably a good time to buy them. So I was talking about with Adam over the weekend. I personally, in my own personal account, I bought long-dated calls on treasury bonds because if my thesis is right and we have a recession next year, yields will fall. If inflation falls and we have a recession, yields will fall. And if those fall, you want to be long treasuries, long-dated treasuries. So 
you know very well what could work out next year. And you know, there's no guarantees, right? But given the exceptionally strong outperformance of energy stocks this year and the exceptionally strong underperformance of bonds and other stocks this year, the odds on bet is that there's going to be an asset class rotation next year. Managers will sell energy to take profits and then buy beaten up stocks and bonds. Particularly as you get through the recessionary process. I'm not saying that's going to happen tomorrow or Monday, right? But next year, as you get into the recession and then start to come out of recession, the growth areas will have the biggest returns. So again, this is, you know, this is why it's always important to, you know, be careful with one-sided bets. There's nothing wrong with one-sided bets, right? To just understand that you can't stay long a one-sided bet indefinitely. You know, it's like trying to short the market ever. You know, I'm, I'm just short the market. I'm never going to change my mind. Okay. And then the market runs up against you, right? It's just, you've got to be willing to sell and change your bets. If you're making a one-sided decision, you're making a bet, right? I am betting long or short or whatever I'm doing. I'm making a bet. And as long as I'm right, that's great. It will end because markets rotate, markets cycle, things change. What was working doesn't work. What doesn't work eventually does work. And this is why it's always the hardest thing for investors to do, which is to buy low and sell high. Because when markets, when things are really beaten up, you don't want to buy them, right? You don't want to buy bonds right now. They're getting killed, right? I don't want to buy stocks. They're getting killed. But that's exactly the time you probably should be buying. When markets are, you know, energy stocks are doing fantastic. They can't go anywhere but up probably a good time to start selling. Demand will slow. As you get into a recession, prices will fall. That's not great for energy stocks. So again, I'm not saying that there's a time frame on this. I'm just saying you have to just look at how things cycle. Everything cycles over time. In 2008, we were having a shortage of oil. We were we were peak oil in 2008. A couple of years later, we got more oil than we know what to do with. Right? Whatever the market tells you is an absolute certainty generally isn't. So just always think about being this is why being a contrarian investor works out more often than not. It's painful to be a contrarian investor because you got to buy stuff when nobody else wants it but more often than not over time it's a winning resolution for your portfolio all right wraps up today 658 markets up 264 right now s&p's up 30 nasdaq's up about 60 so again we'll get a start out of the gate we'll see if we can maintain it today we'll talk about where we are tomorrow of course as we move further into the week have a great day uh stick around three minutes of markets and money coming up on realinvestmentadvice.com be sure and follow our YouTube channel. Check out simplevisor.com. All of it at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.